following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Tell me a little bit about that experience there and the decision to to go to business school because you went to you went to Harvard Business School, right? In the in the two yep. plus two MBA program, which I don't really know what that is. Yeah. So um, yeah. So so I should. Why don't I kind of caveat this? So when I was a and because this is a real grounding for how I made all my decisions, kind of early in my career, and the sense of urgency I think you might be picking up on. Um, so when I was a senior in college at Cornell, I was accepted into Harvard Business School, and I was mm-hmm. accepted into the two plus two program. And so what the two plus two program is is it's a forced deferral where you get accepted your senior year, you graduate, you work for two years, and then you join the uh, you matriculate into HBS. And so the thinking there is they'll get young, entrepreneurial-minded um, students into the program early. Uh, maybe some, and and uh, you don't have to worry about trying to get in or doing all these things to try to get in. You've already been accepted, so you can have a bit of a limited risk experience after you graduate. So what I did is I went to go work at a startup because I knew I wanted to do that, um, and I worked at the Hanson LearnVest. And at my two-year mark, I kind of looked up and. Um, there was more that I wanted to learn and more that I wanted to do before I went into business school. And so I decided to, um, defer and I joined Flybridge. So Flybridge is an early stage venture firm. At the time they were based in Boston and I helped them open their New York city office in 2012, 2013. Um, so my decision kind of through all of this was, um, I wanted to chase very, very steep learning curves. And as the learning curve started to, um, you know, decline a little bit if I wasn't learning mm-hmm. as fast. Um, I just wanted to chase another experience because it was really important for me to experience as much as possible and be exposed to as many different people and as many different businesses as I possibly could before I made the decision to go to business school. So that's kind of how I thought about that. And and in the decision to leave LearnVest and and go to Flybridge was it was pretty similar. I mean, I love LearnVest. I'm I'm close to Alexa Montalvo. She's such a phenomenal founder. Um, but for me, I thought I wanted to be a founder. And so I wanted to see what it was like to raise money right. as a founder. So I thought maybe I'd go to a venture firm and see what that was like. And, and Flybridge was giving me an incredible opportunity to help them open the New York City office. And so I could really be in a really interesting um, seat as a New York tech ecosystem was kind of growing and changing. Um, and I would get to try venture and experience it um, before going into business school and ultimately kind of deciding what I really wanted to do. Mm. And what was your decision to go to business school? Do you feel like they, they at Harvard? I mean, you, you're introduced to this incredible network that I imagine lasts, you know, the rest of your life. What other at practical tools did you did you pick up? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So business school was the way that I thought about business school, and the reason I deferred so long. I ended up deferring for four years. Was I was in such a fortunate position. Mm-hmm. where I could, I wanted to make, like, I always wanted my life and career and the job I had to be like so good that I wanted, that it made the decision to push off business school just a little longer, um, easy, like easier. Right. Like there were things to learn, there were skills to learn, there were kind of expiring experiences to have. Um, so all of that I was learning kind of before I even got to business school. And so when I did get to business school, things that I was optimizing for was just you know, just, just unbelievable breadth of courses and topics and industries that I would never have exposure to otherwise. So I love the technology space. I love startups. I love entrepreneurship. I'm going to work in this area my entire career. 
Um, I wanted I wanted some time to think about other industries. I wanted to think about oil and gas. I wanted to think about Fortune 500, Fortune 100 in a different yeah. way. I wanted to see how the finance sector in in kind of private equity really worked and kind of think through those types of things. So it was it was more of an exposure play, and it's not that different than the way I articulate the advantage of my undergrad experience. So that was kind of the first thing. Um, I think the the second thing was, you know, I really did pick up a, a pretty strong technical skill set. So having come from the, you know, operating world, either working at a startup, working at two startups, and then working at early stage venture, um, there was a lot to learn from the kind of quantitative analysis, analysis and technical perspective. Um, so having a place to do that and, and kind of learn from that lens was good for right. me and strong for me. It was a bit of like a professionalism of my experience so far, because you you generally don't get that at the early stage of startups. Um, it's pretty much a learn by doing scenario. And I wanted to kind of learn by, by kind of forced thinking and introspection. Um, yeah, I mean, I think those were some of the, the professional things I picked up. I think from a personal perspective, I mean, just really, really unbelievable people from all over the world, from all walks of life with incredibly different perspectives. And I just can't tell you how much I enjoyed my perspective being challenged over and over again. Mm. I think um, when you have that type of community, uh, I think in, I think in the tech space, it's incredibly easy to stay in your bubble and think that what you're doing is changing the world and what your you know what your your business is the most important thing. And New York tech is such a driver of the economy, and Silicon Valley is such a driver. Like you really stay in this kind of bubble in this perspective. And I think when you take some time out and you meet some people outside of that world and you really see the other things that other people are doing in other countries across the world or from different different perspectives you know the world's a lot bigger than tech and it's a lot bigger than startups mm -hmm. and it's it's um it's important to remember that was there a shift when you were at hbs that um where you felt like you, you wanted to go from, at one point you wanted to be a founder to another point you wanted mm -hmm. to be nurturing other founders. Was mm -hmm. the, what, did that shift happen in business school? It did happen in business school, and it happened when I tried to start a couple companies. Really? What happened? <laughs> I, you know, I, I just... Uh, I, I'd taken some time in business school to kind of like think and incubate and, and work on a couple of projects with some friends and and try to get excited about different topics and different businesses. And I just kind of, I had a real realization and a real kind of reflective moment where I, where I realized um, what I really like to do is, is do investing. And so um, entrepreneurship is really hard and building a company is incredibly difficult and you need so many things to go right. And you need to be so passionate that, um, it just wasn't clicking for me in school and that doesn't mean it'll never click for me, but I just really kind of was like, you know, I'm glad that I tested this and tried yeah. this and really gave it my all here so that I could kind of really answer this question for myself for now. Um, cause I think early in my career I had real founder envy, like for sure. Like I <laughs> founder all envy? these amazing, gosh, all <laughs> these amazing founders coming entrepreneurs coming into the Flybridge office and sitting down with me and telling me this thing that keeps them up at night and that they love and they're so driven by, and this is why it's going to work and no, you're wrong, but this is why, you know, like it was just like these, these people sharing the, the, yeah. this thing that lights them up, that gives them life, you know? And so as a junior person, when you see that all day, you're like, wow, I wish, you know, I wish I could, I could kind of do that. I wish I kind of had that. So I did it founder envy. And then I kind of, I kind of matured a little bit in business school and I, I thought about, 
you know, what do I really want to do as a person? What does Caitlin really want to do? And I allowed myself time to take a little bit of a break from the tech, tech and startup world. I allowed myself to indulge some of my other interests. I allowed myself to, you know, I, I interned at a startup for fun in Boston. I advised another venture firm for a little bit. And then I tried to start these companies and, and then I did, you know, everything but those. And so I just wanted to see where I naturally floated to when I have, when I had free time, like the, my visual is like, I kind of jumped into a pool and I had these things in three different corners and I just wanted to see where I would like naturally kind of drift and gravitate towards, um, given like full, full reign and freedom to do so. And, and I kept going back to this investing piece and I kept, um, taking meetings with student founders and getting excited about helping them and making introductions. And so I kind of just, um, I went with it and I was like, this is what I really love to do in my, in my free time. And this is, this is what I need to listen to. And this is, I need to kind of listen to myself on this and, and I love it. Well, not, um, not as to much pr- as I want to be a founder. Yeah. Not to pry, <laughs> but I think it's instructive uh, for listeners. What were some of the things that didn't work out and what, what did you learn from it? Um, from, from trying to start a couple companies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, so I think like finding the right team and like the right, the right person to kind of bat stuff around with you, I think is critical. I'm an incredibly collaborative person. I like know my personality, strengths, weaknesses, where I thrive, where I don't like having a strong sense of self and someone that can compliment you, I think is really important. And, And finding that person to kind of do this with you is really, it's really challenging. So for me, um, if I can't find someone amazing to do something with, it's, it's going to be a non-starter. So first is the person. Second is the idea. Um, I was thinking of these businesses and they just didn't, they weren't kind of keep me up at night businesses. Um, when I think of my time at Slope Media in college, I mean, I would be up one, two, three, four a.m. in the morning sending emails to my friends because it was important to do X, Y, and Z. And I was looking for that feeling and all these ideas. I was looking to like recreate that. And I it just, I just wasn't finding it. I wasn't right. getting excited about a travel startup or a healthcare startup or whatever it was, um, or an e-commerce, you know, solution or a, a new brand. I just couldn't, I didn't like, that didn't click for me. Um, and then I think there's, you know, I think there's like a real, there's a real mental and emotional strength that you need as a founder. Like we kind of discussed before, entrepreneurship is incredibly hard. And it is the mo- one of the most difficult jobs in the world in my mind. And you've got to be strong kind of like physically, mentally, motivationally to just like stick through it and endure. Unflappable. Unflappable. And it's, it's you know, it's, it's competitive and there's a lot of like, you know, competition with what you read online and in TechCrunch and all these different things. And there are yeah. stories and there are narratives and there's this, this there's this persona of the you know, like the, the entrepreneurial like hero. And I don't think that that is healthy and actually true for the community. Um, so you've really got to have an appetite and a perspective to be able to kind of like push through that and some strength to get through that, especially if you're young. And so my understanding is uh, where your current position at Lara Hippo is it's a small, really hands-on team that's very engaged with, with, um, with uh, your entrepreneurs. So tell me a little bit about the role you have at Lair Hippo and, and, and the companies that you're building. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such an amazing, amazing team and amazing community. So as a principal at Lair Hippo um, on the investment team, my job is to find 
great opportunities for um, for us to invest in. Mm-hmm. And we're seed investors. So we're actually the most active seed investors in New York. Um, so we probably do something between 20 and 30 deals now a year um, in seed companies. So when you're that active, you have like a really big community. So I think right now we have 250 active portfolio companies. And so one of our jobs is not only identifying great startups and, and great founders, but it's also kind of connecting them into the Blair Hippo family and connecting them with experienced entrepreneurs that have kind of been through this story before right. um, and can kind of help you along the way. So you're at the very early stage of your career uh, and your not career. I'm sorry. You're at the most early stage of your company. And so you're really trying to find that product market fit perspective. And so usually experienced founders can help you with that and experienced investors can help you with that. Um, so that's kind of how we think about where we add value and, and, and what we do. Um, and in some, terms of some what we, companies, Casper, Warby Parker, right, they were recipients. Yeah, yeah. So we've, we've been fortunate to work with um, amazing companies. So they're the ones that kind of everyone's heard of, Casper, Allbirds, Warby Parker, BarkBox, things like that. Uh, we've also invested in a number of enterprise companies so like Clubhouse Software, Namely. Um, yeah, we've been really fortunate to work with some really, really phenomenal founders that have done amazing things. And so the network and the community is really powerful. So what does your day-to-day look like? Like walk us through, how are you recruiting talent? Where are you? Um, how do people get on your radar? Yeah. Um, so I try to be pretty, pretty open and accessible. I think it's really important for, um, for founders and employees of companies to feel like they can find me, talk with me and, and, and meet with me. Um, this is a bit more of like a long-term perspective of investing, but my day to day is just meeting with founders. Um, you know, as many founders and as many companies that I can that are raising seed financing. So I spend a lot of my day, um, sitting down with founders, learning all about their business, mm-hmm. um, and, and seeing how we can help and seeing if it's interesting. Um, it's just such a cool, it is such a cool job. How quickly, Caitlin, can you determine if something is just not going to go? Um, so I think I can determine it usually in the first meeting. I have a pretty good sense. I've got a bit of like a mental framework that I rely pretty What's heavily on. What's the framework? On, so. Yeah. So the first thing is, you know, is this a really special person? Um, and I feel like uh, you know, is this person driven? Are they, are they kind of easy to connect to? Can they, are they communicating the vision? Well, um, would I want to work with them? I can kind of glean all of that almost like in the first five minutes. It's, it's like really, <laughs> that's amazing. It's, it's Emotional people. intelligence on your head. Yeah. Steve, you can do, you can do that too. It's, <laughs> it's like you just sit down and you kind of know, and it's not like this is going to be the next billion dollar founder, but you're like, all right, you know, like bar cross, this person is like, it kind of hits hits my intangible factors of like, all right, at least we've got the at least we've got the stuff here. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is I kind of go into a little bit of product and market. So is yeah. this an interesting product? Have we seen this before? Why at this point in history is this kind of like a novel, interesting way to think through it? Um, and then how are they thinking about it? So my third kind of my third piece of this framework is I'm going to ask a lot of questions and how thoughtful are we about the answers? How deeply have they thought about it? Um, do I feel like they have a strong command of the business? Um, and that's really it for my kind of first meeting. Um, so it's, it's not, it's not a very rigorous process. It's not that difficult. Um, but that's kind of, that's kind of how I think about how, um, 
how to determine if we should spend more or less time with this particular person or this particular team. When you when you are assessing someone and you're looking for that initial spark uh, mm-hmm. that that that's going to identify that this is a special person, when someone doesn't have that. Does it? I mean, I know you either have it or you don't have it. But when someone doesn't have it, because sometimes there are special people that you know fall victim to projecting an image of themselves that they think you want to see, or mm-hmm. coming off a little too rehearsed. What are some of the pitfalls that you notice that people out there listening to this entrepreneurs could avoid that that they might fall sure. victim to? Yeah, you know, I don't. I don't think there's a way. There, there's no way to like game it, you know, like I don't, I, I think everyone is special. I truly think everyone is special. I don't think there are special people and, and not special people. I think the thing that I really look for is like authenticity mm-hmm. and, and like, and then are you the best person to be doing the thing you're doing? Like, I think you can be uh, a great person doing the wrong thing yeah. or you could be, a not so great person that like, you know, has some other issues. It doesn't matter what business they're building or not. But I think for me, it's about authenticity and, and the Genesis story of why something's really important to you. Um, so that's kind of my, my first bar. I really don't think you can game it. I think investors spend all day meeting with people. And so you, you know, you are kind of training this muscle of, of kind of quickly evaluating personalities and the way about you and style and things like that. And it's, it's not around, um, things you can control. It's purely an authenticity piece. And so how often, um, how often do you see someone with a spark that might be in need of, of, a, of a team or, or incapable of proper oh. execution? <laughs> Gosh, all the, time. all the time, all the time. That's like the name of the game. Yeah. But here's the thing with, with entrepreneurship, like, like, gosh, there's so many people trying to, so many fantastic people building so many fantastic things where it might be the wrong point in history or the wrong team or the wrong market. Right. And so, and that's okay. Like when people come up to the plate again and try again or come up to the plate again with another team, like I love to see that. That's just, that's like a bit of that endurance, this grit, this like, this desire to build a company. They want to make a dent in the world. I love that. So um, I tend to be very honest and open and upfront. Um, you know, I, I, my, when I don't invest in a company, it's never really about the person. It's really about, you know, um, the opportunity. Um, so I think that if, if entrepreneurs are listening to this and, and, um, you know, and if an investor isn't going to invest in your idea, that's not, they're not investing in your idea. It's not that they aren't investing in you. And so sometimes it's helpful to ask for feedback right. or, um, go back to your network and think about, well, what are my, what do I need to kind of round out my skill set? Who could I partner with to kind of make this happen? I think, you know, I, I we just invested in a company um, which has, um, you know, the COO is now this is kind of their third go at a at a company in the space. And every time I've met her previously, I just I thought she's been amazing. She's just, you know, it was just not the right idea, not the right business. And now right. she's on the third thing, and she's partnered with a an experienced founder who's a little bit older and who's a perfect complement. And it's just like, wow, yes, this makes sense. It's like right. finally the perfect pairing. You know, I gotta be honest. I, I, uh, this, this is absolutely my passion. I love investing. I love being a venture investor. I love how I spend every single minute of every single day. I am, I am like, I'm like peaking right now. I'm totally, <laughs> I'm, this is the right thing for me to be doing at the right point in my life. And I couldn't be happier. And I think, you know, I think for, for people out there, if like, you know, anyone that was listening is, 
it's okay to change your mind and it's okay for your interest to evolve and it's evolve and it's okay for the thing that you loved when you were in your early twenties to change. Right. And you don't have to be a founder and you don't have to be an entrepreneur. You could be a rock star employee. You could do a million things inside and outside of tech. Um, I think that everyone's most important job is finding the thing that really like kicks them up in the morning and, and, and makes them excited. And you have to shed your old self over and over and over right. again, because if you're not evolving and if you like the things that you liked when you were in your early twenties, you're not growing nearly as fast or as, as large as you should. Well, just to pick up on one last thing, I know you were interested in the future of media. It sounds like in, in, uh, while you were at Cornell, are you still interested in that? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah, totally. I think, I think, um, we're at an interesting point where like many of my old interests are kind of dovetailing into new technology. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really excited about the audio space, um, for fun. I really like the voice enabled device space. I love what's happening with video and AR. I love how Gen Z is communicating with each other. Um, there's so, so much. And at a place like Lair Hippo, where you've got a number of investments in the media space, space, whether it's Buzzfeed or Axios or, or our connection with group nine with, right. you know, the Dodo and now this, like there's just, it's a wide open space. So it's, it's, um, I am still very excited in it, but I'm also excited about a lot of other things too. All right. Well, Caitlin, this has been very helpful for, for entrepreneurs to hear. And I think it's been a pleasure to speak to you about, about what you've learned, uh, over your exciting career. And I hope, uh, I will, we'll be keeping up with you. So thanks a lot. Amazing. Thank you so much, Steve. I really appreciate it. And thanks to anyone listening. That's it for this episode of Forbes Under 30. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to reach out to us with a comment or question, please do so at under 30. That's the number 30 at podcastone.com. Hey, everybody, before we get going, could you please do the Forbes podcast a huge favor by filling out a less than five-minute survey? Just go to podcastone.com slash my survey or go to podcastone.com and click on the survey banner. It's completely anonymous, and your responses will help us align appropriate advertisers with you, our listeners, so that we can be talking about things that are relevant to you. If you've if you filled out a survey in the past, we thank you, but we we still need you to do it again. Your efforts will help us stay free to download with minimal ads. Podcastone.com and click on the survey banner. Thank you for taking a few minutes uh, to fill out the survey. There's a real mental and emotional strength that you need as a founder. Like we kind of discussed before, entrepreneurship is incredibly hard. And it is the mo- one of the most difficult jobs in the world in my mind. And you've got to be strong kind of like physically, mentally, motivationally to just like stick through it and endure. Unflappable. Unflappable. Welcome to the Forbes Under 30 podcast. I'm Steve Goldblum, your host. On this show, we speak with young entrepreneurs and innovators. And support from Forbes Under 30 comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. You're confident when it comes to your work and life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same confidence when it comes to refinancing your existing mortgage and support from lets you understand all the details so you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. Go to rocketmortgage.com slash Forbes.
Caitlin Strandberg is a principal at the New York-based VC, Lara Hippo. She was listed in Forbes 2017, uh, 30 under 30 for VC, and she has uh, lots of prior experience in early-stage venture firms, which we're going to hear about now because she's here with us on Skype. Caitlin, hello. Hi, everyone. Hi. <laughs> you Now, you're in New York. Where in New York are you? Uh, so I am in Soho. I am on. Uh, I'm in the Lair Hippo offices. We're on the corner of Crosby and Prince. Very nice. Very nice. It's a good yeah. area to be in. Are you from? New- Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Orlando, Florida. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. If you've ever heard of Disney World, I've heard of um, it. Even though I'm Canadian, I know Orlando well. <laughs> been there, driven through it. I have not been to Disneyland, sadly. What? I know. All right. Well. Later, later. Wait, isn't that we'll, we'll Epcot Center? Epcot Center, right? Yeah, it's yeah. Everything. I have been there. Sorry, I forget. I I I was in a like a night. They used to do. They simulated the Star Trek um, episodes. So you, my family, I was about five. I was in a Star Trek episode because that like that was their big thing in nineteen eighty eight wow. or eighty nine. So there That's you go. That's pretty cool. A little bit about me. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Caitlin, you said. You've said that you were an insecure overachiever. You've said that before. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Where did you find that? Never mind where we found it. (laughs) We found it. We do vigorous research for this show. Yeah. And we found it. And and what does it mean? Because it it resonated with me. I was like, maybe I'm an insecure overachiever. Maybe I'm like a closet intellectual or something. I don't know what it means. What does it mean? Oh, my gosh. Aren't we all? So so this is a term that I heard – probably when I was like 22 and it just like really resonated with me. Yeah. It was this idea of like, you know, it's, it's just kind of, um, I think a little bit about how, how you're motivated. So it's this idea of you're always striving, you're always looking for the next thing. You're really ambitious and you're kind of, you're, you're successful and you're achieving and you're growing along the way, but you never really feel like you are. And so it's always the next thing, always the next thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that's like a pretty, it's a, it can be a pretty common descriptor for um, kind of like high achieving young people where there's a little bit of an imposter syndrome effect. Yes. Um, I am, I am less insecure now. <laughs> As you should be. <laughs> I am be. a secure overachiever now. You're a secure overachiever. So, we, but we, did you feel that way? Like, were you in growing up in Orlando were you like doing the the the, the like the ba- the bake sales and the drives and things like that? And you needed to be number one. You needed to get that hustle out of the way, or was it? Were you the quiet overachiever? What which was mm-hmm. it? Um. So I was. I think as like a high school student, I was really active and really involved in kind of my community. So I, um, I you know, I think I was I was kind of a part or leadership in a bunch of student clubs. I was an athlete. Mm-hmm. And strove to be like a leader on that. I think it was um, it, my approach was always like if I'm going to do something and if I have to show up, I'm a, I'm going to kind of try my best and kind of get the most juice out of the squeeze that I possibly can. So that was kind of a mentality I had, and I think along the way I eventually um, was kind of recognized for caring and recognized for kind of building the community. So I kind of was a like a young student leader, but I don't think it was anything I was like really intentional about. I, I just always wanted to. Um, kind of do my best with the time and the situation I was given. So um, in high school, there are so many opportunities where you can do that and, and excel and, and succeed. 
Well, you have such an interesting position now at Lara Hippo, which we're going to get into, but I think it would be interesting to give context to that now and, and pick up on some of your background. So what, what was it that you wanted to do when you were, when you were growing up? Oh my gosh. I wanted to be a rock star. I wanted to be a musician so badly. And I wanted to like play guitar on stage and, uh, and do that. (laughs) (laughs) Who were your influences? Oh, I was like your classic indie rock, like kid. Like I, let's see. I loved death cab for cutie. Um, my dad turned me on to ACDC when I was like 14. They bought me a guitar when I was 14. Um, so whatever he listened to, I listened to, but I, I totally did the whole high school, college, indie punk rock, go to concert, um, buy the band t-shirt thing. Right. Right. And Mm -hmm. so there was no part of you that was like, you know, maybe I'll just be investing in startups or I'll have a a career. (laughs) And was there any part of you that was, that could have predicted where you wound up today? Oh, absolutely not. So it's so funny. I, I mean, I didn't even know what startups were when I was in high school and I barely knew what they were when I was in college. I mean, I was in high school and college around, you know, in the early 2000s and, and I graduated from college in 2010 so, you know, the internet, Facebook, Apple, all that wasn't quite what it was today. So I just didn't have a lot of exposure, especially coming from Florida. Um, so I had no idea. Um, I actually kind of grew that interest more when I was in college. Uh, but I never I never would have guessed that I would be a venture investor and in, in doing this day to day. Right. Well, how could you? And, and it was history that caught your attention to Cornell, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So tell me about your yeah. decision to go to Cornell and, your, and, and what you studied there. Yeah, so Cornell is a, is a great university in that there are, you know, seven or eight colleges within the university. So you can yeah. literally study anything you want. You could be in a hospitality school. You could be industrial labor relations. You could go to architecture school. Um, you could do anything there. And it was and they were all really phenomenal programs. Um, so I went to Cornell um, just because I, you know, I really liked it. I was very drawn to this idea that I could there were going to be all sorts of paths and all sorts of passions I didn't know I had yet. And right. It was going to be an opportunity to explore all sorts of things I didn't know existed. And so that was the real draw for me. I think secondarily, um, I had done crew very competitively as a high school student. I was a coxswain on a crew team for a long time. What is a coxswain? Forgive me. I'm from the East Coast, Canada. I, I, for, there's not a lot of crew sure. there. Yeah. Um, I did compete in Ontario once, which was, really? which was very fun. Uh-huh. So maybe there, yeah, okay. the, the, the Royal Canadian Henley. <laughs> Um, wait, say that again. The Royal Canadian Henley. Okay, great. Um, it's great. not like the Royal Henley. It's the Canadian version of it. That's I'm just uh, picturing RCMP officers like saluting as you, as you pass them. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it was so, so, uh, so it's a coxswain is someone that sits in the, um, in the back of the boat and kind of sets the cadence and, and you're yelling uh, pace of a race for their rowers. So you're yelling, you're motivating, you're coaching, you're correcting. And I think most importantly, you're steering. Um, Are you physically steering or are you sort of like mentally guiding? You're physically steering. I had, I had two, uh, two little ropes that I would be controlling the rudder on, on, uh, underneath the boat. So I would be steering. Right. And and do you need to train as vigorously as, as as everyone else? Because it's not, you know, you're not rowing as hard. I always wondered, but what was the train? Because the training is like four in the way. It's like being in the Marines, isn't yeah. it? 
Yeah, yeah, it's it's called Two a Days. Um, uh, so I I actually did. So I trained alongside my team whenever we were on land, and right. the thinking there was, you know, everyone's in that boat on race day, and uh, you have to really earn the respect um, of your team and kind of be along be along the journey with them as you're training for these big races. So when there were long runs, I was on the long runs. When we were doing rowing machine exercises, I would jump in and do some of that. Um, and actually most nights before big races, I would actually run the race, um, in my head on a rowing machine of the things that I would say as I was rowing. So I could really get a sense of like, when are you exhausted? When do you need that extra little push? Like what I hated if someone said this to me. Um, so I I actually, I took a, I took a pretty active approach because I, I was dependent on my team to get me across the finish line. So you really, um, you're honing in your leadership skills, right? And inspiring work and, and inspiring results on the, on the crew team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's reminding me, I can't do those workouts, you know, like the P90X workouts where they're yelling at you. And it's like, they're like, they're always, they're always saying something like, it's not, it's, it's, it's the results come from the work. It's not easy. If it was easy, everyone, and it drives me bananas. That's why I literally, I can't do it. I have to, you know, I have to do something else. I mean, everyone has different things that motivate them. Everyone has different trigger words or different motivations. And so I even remember on the crew team. I really got to know the rowers and it was okay. Like, why are you doing this? What do you want to achieve out of the race? Like, or do you get angry by the competition? Like this other boat, are you here to kind of push yourself? Do you have a mental Mm. barrier? Like, so you say different things to different people and you call people out in the boat and you, um, you kind of get people that way. But there is, there is not one single way to motivate an entire boat. You have to motivate each, each individual person on the, the thing that motivates them in particular. Do you feel like that skill set has helped you motivate people in your work now when you see the kernel of an idea and you're like, you know, this 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 person has the goods, but they just need some mentorship and, and my tutelage to help them get to the next level? <laughs> well, I I don't think anyone needs my mentorship or my tutelage. I think they just entrepreneurs just need my perspective, I think. I think I have a particular vantage point. Um, having seen a lot of different companies at a lot of different stages. And then I kind of see all the other investments. So I think my perspective is the most valuable thing. Um, But I do think there are definitely some management and leadership lessons um, grounded in my kind of my, uh, my early experience as a coxswain. Um, And I think the, you know, to, to maybe make an analogy is I really think entrepreneurship is one of the most difficult things you can do professionally. I think it is hard work that is mentally straining and it's physically taxing and it's a marathon not a sprint and you've got to pace yourself and you've got to surround yourself with people you can trust and you have to kind of keep incrementally moving forward and moving forward and moving forward and so yeah like every stroke matters and you have to give it you know just as hard as the last one and there are moments when you sprint and there are moments when you kind of build up stamina and so there are definitely some analogies but um uh i uh, I think that's more of what I see than, hmm. than kind of mentoring and, and uh, I really like that. that. I, I like the analogy of the marathon because the marathon, there's a lot of people that think they can do a marathon. They get out there and they collapse and they just can't finish. It doesn't work. So mm-hmm. talk to me a little bit about the preparation involved, the mindset that a person needs to have, the backbone that a person needs to have to be an entrepreneur and be successful at it. Because I imagine there's some setbacks that are just inevitable. Like you're mm-hmm. going to get sick of talking about yourself, sick of selling yourself, and you're going to have to face rejection endlessly. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I've been very fortunate to work with two exceptional founders, um, kind of as a as an early employee at their company. So I used to work with a founder named Scott Belsky, who ran a company called Behance. Yeah. And a founder named Alexa Von Tobel, who ran a company called LearnVest. Both companies have been acquired. And so I kind of got a front seat of what great leaders and founders look like. And if I were to draw some some characteristics from them and from the others I've experienced, it's it's maybe a few things. So one, it's just this this um, deep passion for what they're building um, and the problem that they're solving. It's when things get hard and the days get long and things get difficult, they kind of like rely on that passion to push you to the next level. So that's one is you've got to like love what you're doing and be passionate about it. Two, um, because of that passion, you just have to be relentless on achieving it by any means possible. Um, and you typically do that by being incredibly resourceful. So, um, with your network, with your people, with your team. Um, and then there's just this element of like real grit. I mean, grit is like a very common attribute around entrepreneurships, but, but I think day to day to see it in practice is very different than to think about it kind of theoretically. Like grit is like every day grinding up at four, up at five in the office, putting on a smile, motivating your team. Um, if a setback comes, you kind of keep it to yourself. You tell the people you need to know and you just keep the train moving. Um, I, and I think those are, I think maybe there's another element where like, you just have to be incredibly persuasive. The, the best founders I know are, they're very, very different personally, but they're incredibly persuasive and charismatic and they get people to see their vision. And so they're excellent communicators. And, um, I what think you, most starting they're very different personally. Well, I think there's, there's so many different types of entrepreneurial personas. So, um, you know, there's kind of like the cerebral intellectual that can be kind of quiet. Um, so if you were thinking of like a founder who's starting maybe like an infrastructure type company um, or like a deep, deep, you know, technical company, those those founders tend to kind right. of look like that. You can have the direct to consumer brand founder who tends to be more creative and, and you know, a real face of the company. Uh, there are all sorts of different personas. There can be like the young, you know, college dropout. There can be the third time entrepreneur who's coming out of retirement to do it. There are all sorts of different, different personas. Hmm. Well, I want to get to what you look for um, in an entrepreneur, but I, I also want to go through here and you're studying, you're, you're at Cornell, you're studying oh, yeah. h- history. You launched uh, slope media, right? Mm-hmm. While, while you were at Cornell. So what is that? What was that? Yeah. So, so I started this organization with uh, with a handful of friends. So I co-founded the organization alongside some others. And it was basically, this was probably in 2006, 2007. So it was a student-run digital media group. So it was internet radio that branched into internet television and a, a digital magazine that would later be called a blog. But in 2006, right. blogs weren't really a thing yet. Uh, the economy hadn't kind of crashed. And so Hulu wasn't on campuses. Sirius XM had not merged yet. So the landscape looked a little different. And it started with me and, and some friends kind of starting an internet radio show. And so I had an internet radio show on Indie Rock. And, you know, kind of month to month, we grew it into a very, very big student organization where um, the thinking was, you know, we learn about technology and we learn about digital media and we learn about some of these things. But there's nowhere on campus to kind of practice it and do it. Um, so an example of that is if you wanted to be a sportscaster for ESPN, um, you needed some sort of kind of portfolio or reel of, right. of, you know, you announcing a hockey game. So 
and that wasn't available on campus. So we gave students a camera. We talked to the hockey team. We started to live stream it to alumni all over the country. Um, Cornell hockey is like a very big, big thing. Cultish, yeah. And so, yeah, we like put it on news. And so we kind of like, we would create these opportunities. We'd interview visiting musicians. We had professors doing radio shows. Um, it was a really cool organization where we were doing all sorts of types of things like that. And I did that for four years. Um, and it was where I really caught like the entrepreneurial bug. It was building, growing, scaling something, convincing a bunch of student volunteers to do this. And it was a place for people to learn and explore their interest and um, and develop their voice from that element. Hmm. Well, it seems like once you graduated Cornell and you did um, pick up the entrepreneurial bug, you really accelerated into a few different companies and moved on quickly. Like it, it, it on paper, it looks like you you came in or like you were the tenth employee at Behance, right? Yeah, I think I was. I was probably like ten or. Maybe like 12 or 13 or something like that. But yeah, very, very early employee. Before the Adobe acquisition. Yeah. So I joined in 2010, literally right out of undergrad. I think I graduated and, and I was there within two to three weeks. Um, and so they had not raised any financing. They'd certainly not raised a Series A. Um, so I think the Adobe acquisition happened in 2012. And what position did you have there at the hands? So I was, the official title is the Associate Director of Business Development, which a team of 13, I think, um, doesn't mean that much. But I think uh, if you were to kind of scope back and think about what the role today is, I was, I was more of like a founder apprentice to Scott Belsky, the founder there. Right. Um, so I was doing That's, a, um, that's a great title, though. That's a very Washington, D.C. title. Yeah. It's, it's, like a, it's, a, it's an emerging – it's a common title now. I think in 2010, it wasn't really a thing yet. Yeah. Um, but it's basically like you're just the junior person to yeah. help the founder and whatever kind of business strategic needs he or she has. Like you're there, you're on it, you're learning how to be a founder, right? You know, right along with them. Um, uh, now that might be more of like a chief of staff type role, but but in, in you know in 2010 it was really it was just kind of like learning from Scott and and helping him think through challenges and helping him kind of execute on different different business goals. Right. And so what was your, what, why did you decide to leave, right? You left after they were acquired? Yeah. So I actually left before they were acquired. I left um, just as they were announcing the Series A. Mm -hmm. And so I'd been there a little under two years. Um, and for me, at the time, I, I loved entrepreneurship. I had started this thing in college. Um, I, I thought I wanted to be a founder. I was really excited about it. I just wanted to see all sorts of different businesses at all sorts of different sizes and scales um, and and just get exposure. And so for me, I'd done, you know, I'd been there, um, you know, a little under two years and I was ready for the next thing. So um, I wanted to work for a different kind of management team. I wanted to see different business challenges. I wanted to see what um, what a company with more resources can do. Um, yeah, I was I was kind of, informally learning how to be a founder. Um, hmm. and that's, so that's kind of how I approached it. So you knew that's where you wanted to go, even at that early, early stage. You know, I didn't, I didn't know for sure. I think I like loved what I did in undergrad at, at doing the salt media. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I loved it. I mean, it was, it was such a kick, such a thrill. I learned so much. There were no rules and we built something really special. We built something big, something that's still on campus. Yeah. And, and it was impactful and, and people loved it and, and students still love it. And so like that was just such a, a thrill for me. And that was where I really ignited some passion. And so the most natural 
next step was entrepreneurship because that's what I was doing. And so I didn't know that I wanted to be a founder per se, but I knew I wanted to try to do that again or put myself in a position where I could do something like that again. So I just kind of chased that interest and chased that um, that thread a little bit. And that was being, being around amazing experienced founders that kind of knew how to do it. And I could, I could see how it was done well. And we're taking a quick break now, but we'll be right back. Support for the Forbes Under 30 podcast comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, the mortgage company that decided to ask why. Why can't clients get approved in minutes rather than weeks? Why can't they make adjustments to their rate and term in real time? And why can't there be a client-focused technological mortgage revolution? Quicken Loans answered all these questions and more with Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence you need when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your 10th with Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Apply simply, understand fully, mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash Forbes. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. At the border. I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying. And the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue. 